Welcome back to episode three of the Health Unfiltered podcast. I am joined by my amazing co-hosts. I'm Brooke, and we have Ro and Nicole with us here today. Hello. What's up? <laughs> you can't be shy, Coco. You're taking yeah. the lead today on this amazing <laughs> podcast. Um, I'm really, really excited for this. I hope you are. Uh, Nicole's going to talk about intuitive eating and health at every size. And I think this is a super important topic and also a trend now in the field of nutrition, which is really exciting. So with that being said, um, what are you guys drinking today? It's it's really early for this podcast, but yeah, it's never too early to drink though. What time uh, is it there, Ro? It's 2.30, 2.23. So Okay. Sunday yeah, fun day? Sunday, exactly. It's a Lord's Day. Uh it's fine. <laughs> I have uh, a beer called uh Pearl Haggard. It's by Ex Novo. It's from a company out in Corrales, New Mexico. I've never tried it, but the can looked really cool. So I was like, well, we'll do this one today. So if you guys see me grimacing, then uh, it's not for me, but I'll I'll finish it. I like that you keep getting local beers. I didn't know craft beer was a thing. I guess it's a thing everywhere now, all these microbreweries. Yeah. Well, when I, when I first moved to New Mexico, I found out that Albuquerque is like the third most craft beery place in the U.S. So there's a lot nice. of options here. I'm not even close to having tried them all so yeah i feel like every time we do a a podcast i'm like let's get a different one this should be good what about you i'm taking a mug giant mug if you're not watching the video of this of hot tea to the face (laughs) because it's 4 30 here on the east coast and i have to run errands this sunday so i just have a giant mug of hot tea today what is this podcast becoming (laughs) it is kind of grandma like but fitting what about nicole what are you drinking i am drinking some decaf coffee (laughs) i think that's more grandma like than my hot tea absolutely for sure we need a new level my family will do like half decaf half regular like that's the level of elderly they've reached where in the mornings it's half decaf half regular so you just gotta like slam as many mugs as you can to get the full effect (laughs) sweet sounds like a really great (laughs) great way to get through your day Uh, you gotta do what you gotta do very true hey so before we start and get into it um i did get a question of the week that we uh i think i talked about a little bit um that we'd like to to answer um so the question i got was from a client of mine uh and he goes in and does in bodies like once uh once a month, once every couple of times, I'm not really sure. Um, but he told me, hey, why is it that uh, according to this in-body, and for those of you who don't know what an in-body is, it's a BIA scanner. So the whole point is to kind of give you percentage body fat, um, muscle mass, fat-free mass, fat mass, depending on the model. Uh, but it's really just a way to check you know, how much you weigh and how much of that is based on fat and muscle. And he said, why is it that I've lost three pounds of muscle uh, in the past month and a half? And I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And he was like, well, I took a BIA scan and that's what it told me. Um, and there's a, a couple things that people don't know about BIAs uh, and just in body in general, or I guess opposite in body and BIAs in general. Uh, it's super... Um, dependent on your uh, hydration status 
that uh, if you've eaten recently, um, if you slept weird, and if you've worked out that day. So if you are going to measure yourself using BIA, regardless of what it is, it's going to be way more accurate if you do it first thing in the morning, um, when you haven't had food to eat yet, uh, when you haven't exercised, so the, the fluids within your body haven't shifted to the muscles, things like that. Um, and so there's a lot of ways that it can be misrepresented um, of like how your progress is going. So I did ask him, I was like, you know, do you remember drinking water today or that day that you did it? Did you eat a lot beforehand? And he's like, well, I exercised back then. I didn't really exercise this time. I just went in to do it. So one of the worst things you can do is just be like, fuck it. I'm just going to get a BIA scan right now. Uh, because yeah, like, what have you done all day? You know, that's totally going to affect it. Um, and the reason it affects it so much is because a BIA works on sending electrical impulses from one rod to the other. So generally your hand, left hand to the right hand, and then left foot to the left or sorry, right foot. Um, and so water obviously conducts a lot better when, or electricity conducts a lot better when there's water. And so when you have hydrated muscle, when you have glycogen that's in the muscle, that's going to affect the speed at which electricity moves through it. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, and so if you are dehydrated, it's going to assume you have less muscle. And then it's also going to assume that you have more fat. So just based on that alone, like you can have wildly different changes because maybe one day you're super hydrated and then you have a long work day, you go work out, blah, blah, blah. You didn't, you sweat through the night and then you go in, in the morning um, and you are ultra dehydrated, then that's going to shift even more to you having a higher body fat percentage. Um, so really the, the main takeaway is one, like it's, it's one point in time. So it's not mm -hmm. really telling you that you are 40% body fat all the time. Um, just at that moment Two, it's very dependent on how hydrated you are, how you slept, if you worked out what you ate. And then because of that, if you're not measuring the same way every time, uh, it's going to have really unpredictable results. So um, if you are doing that, that's a super great tool to use, um, especially if you're really trying to track your body fat percentage and increases in lean muscle mass. Um, but do be careful because uh, like I said, it can give you the wrong idea. And then it can also like unmotivate you because you're like, oh, yeah. this isn't working. I honestly don't recommend that clients use this as an option unless it's all they have. I always recommend if you can to do a DEXA first because it's more of like the gold standard of, of body fat testing. And I find that these BIA scales, well, technically hydrostatic weighing, but who has time for that? <laughs> so really it's the DEXA in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it's the DEXA, let's be real. So <laughs> technology. But this whole BIA, I think it tends to make people freak out, like you said, because they're not being super careful to test under the same conditions. But if this is all you have access to, it's like it's like you said, it's great information. I would mm. just be mindful that it might not be super accurate. But if you're always testing under the same conditions, it might be helpful in showing you trends, right? Yes. Like, yeah, and so sure. that's really helpful. Um, 
but I just feel like it's so tricky. And it's like, even if you, if you went to bed the day before and let's say you did a hot yoga class, you were super sweaty, you're not at your normal hydration level. And then the next morning, like there's still all these little factors that could be throwing this thing off. Cause it's kind of sensitive. Absolutely. Yeah. I, so, I definitely agree with that. Um, the only reason I, I said like, I don't know about the whole Dexa thing is uh, because one of my professors would murder me if I didn't, uh, if I didn't say that. So, so we gave uh, the shout out to hydrostatic wing, yeah, but like yeah, no yeah, one yeah. has that, right? Like no For one sure, has yeah. that I unless you have, have access to a tub. research lab. Like basically, yeah. unless you're row, where are you getting hydrostatic <laughs> wang done? Like- sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, and you know, uh, you can say that Dexa companies have different um, formulas, but at the same time, like True. different, different BIA equipment has different formulas. So it's kind of a moot point. Um, but no, that's, that's definitely great that you brought that up, that it's, it's a tool. Um, and it isn't like something that you absolutely need. Uh, because as you've said before, and we'll probably get into another episode is that there's way more ways to see how progress is happening, uh, as opposed to what's going on in the scale and <clears throat> the BIA. Sorry about that. But yeah, cool. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave, for the question. Coco, you want to lead us off and dive into the intuitive eating world? Yes, I would love to. So for today's podcast, um, most of the information is being pulled from the intuitive eating book that was originally written in 1995, but I think they're on their like fourth or fifth version. Um, Every few years, they continue to update the research and update the data and the information that's provided in this book. So if anything in this podcast that you're like wanting to learn more of, that's just number one recommendation is to buy the intuitive eating book. And this was, and it's a concept that was introduced um, by two dietitians named Evelyn Tribble and Elise Reich. I think that's how you say their names. Really sorry if it's not. Um, But I think when you think about intuitive eating and like, I guess this is like my kind of first question to you guys. If when was like the first time in your life, like you realized that you weren't approaching like food and eating from like an instinctual place. Like were you, when were you like kind of like approaching food is like, this is good. This is bad. And like, how should I be eating? Like, do you guys kind of remember a time when you first started doing that? Or if you Rose haven't done it, you go ahead, Ro. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I remember <laughs> uh, this hurt to me. I should go to therapy for it. Uh, I remember um, <laughs> I was at the doctor's office and uh, <clears throat> my doctor, I was like a chunky kid, you know, uh, but he like, he put his hands like into my stomach and squeezed and he was just like, you are obese. And I was like, okay. And he's like, vegetables, you need more vegetables, carrots. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know what this means. Like I'm, I'm like 12 or 13 uh, and I was just kind of like, uh, all right. So that's kind of when I started being like, like, what is, what is food? You know? Um, cause as a Mexican, like we just eat whatever it's, they're always like potlucks and like, it's always like a social thing. Um, but yeah, that was probably it. And then what really it popped off when I broke my ankle when I was 15, I was bedridden for like six months. And so I put on like 50 pounds within those six months uh, and so when I was like, well, I need to lose weight and get back to being like a normal human being, I like cut out bread and stop eating tortillas and whatnot. Um, and that, that was when I for sure took like the dive into like food is a fuel or it's, you know, something it's, it's not something that is like 
natural now. Um, but it's definitely changed. But that's those are the two moments that I can definitely attribute to to that. That's crazy. A doctor did that. <laughs> like, yeah, you're telling I, me. I shouldn't be as shocked as like I am because it's it's I think more common than we we realize. But that's always disappointing to hear. Yeah, uh, I think my first real influential moment of diet culture. I was eight years old. I put myself on my first diet. It was the Jello diet. Like, I don't even know if this was a real thing in the 90s or something that was made up by people around me where I ate nothing but Jello. And then I would have one real meal at night. I was oh eight. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Married say. Uh, nothing. And for a long time, well, like my family wasn't really a family where we gathered around the table to share food. Uh, my family was like, Hey, let's do TV dinners and craft Mac and cheese and you can eat wherever. <laughs> and we didn't really have family mealtimes. Cooking was not a part of my immediate family culture. Mm. Um, obviously like coming from a Southern family, my, uh, like everyone else, we had big gatherings and like Southern food, but not in my immediate family. So I pretty much kind of did whatever I wanted surrounding food and no one really noticed. And I developed like really unhealthy eating habits and sometimes um, like a lot of restricting pretty much, mostly restricting. At eight years old too, yeah. like, oh yeah. Man. I started really, really young. It was a very like long path of kind of being exposed to like fad diets and diet culture and all these weird little things that like I remember um, the low carb Atkins thing doing that when I was really little. So I have a lot of experience with <laughs> diet culture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, the same thing. I mean, I definitely started like my first diet in like the third grade at like eight years old. So oh, I think that's really common, especially in women. Um, we just, we hear what our moms are saying and we hear them talking about their bodies and how they want it to change or whatever. And we just, we really pick up on this like beauty ideal at a very young age. And we start to mm -hmm. try to manipulate our body into what the media tells us it should be. So thank you both for, yeah. for sharing that. Yeah. And it's like, Nicole, you said, it's like you hear other people pick apart their bodies and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, well, that must be wrong with me too, because they're picking it apart on them, their body. <clears throat> so I do think there's something to be said for, um, I was having this conversation with someone else the other day about like paying attention to what we say around others and like kind of putting our own on others in a way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. So when you're thinking about intuitive eating, like we're thinking about, like, I think we mentioned this in the podcast last week where it shouldn't even really have a name. It's just eating, you know, it's just listening to your body. It's following that instinctual concept of what we always thought eating was going to be. And then we had these experiences row at the doctor's office at 12 years old and, you know, Brooke going for the jello for <laughs> breakfast and lunch. Um, and so we then step out of that instinctual, I'm just going to listen to my body. I'm going to feed myself when I need to be fed. And we go into all these diet rules. So intuitive eating is really trying to like get back to that more intuitive, instinctual way of eating and like viewing food in our bodies. And I think that it really gets a lot of pushback because so many people think that this just, just means like I can eat whatever I want, how much I want, whenever I want. And yeah. yes, like the intuitive eating concept allows you 
the opportunity to make peace with food and also allows you like to eat unconditionally because like there are aspects that like you're gonna have to heal and like if you've always thought like i can never eat chocolate cake then yeah you're probably gonna like eat a little bit more chocolate cake or whatever as you're like hearing that thought process when it comes to whatever food it is that you told yourself you can't eat but um i think another huge thing to remember too is like when we're thinking about the diet industry and how much money they make you know, it's a $60, $70 million industry. And it's just like... Billion. Yeah, yeah billion. billion. Yeah, yeah. sorry. <laughs> and if this worked, then like, why, like, why are they still making money? If it was something yeah. that truly worked for people, like, wouldn't we all just be happy and healthy and we wouldn't need the next new hot diet? Um, I really like... They use an example in the book and it talked about like, if you're having car issues like, and you kept taking it to a me mechanic for regular tune-ups and to get work done on it. And you kept spending your money over and over and over and your car kept breaking. Like, would you blame yourself or would you blame the mechanic? And of course, in that situation, you're like, of course I would blame the mechanic. The like mechanic. it's their job. They should be doing it. But right. you know, there is like diets have like a 90 to 95% fail rate. And yet we still blame ourselves when we don't succeed at them. And I think it's really important to like take that example and realize like, it's not you, it's the diet. And they want you to fail at it because they want you to buy the next one. <clears throat> yeah. I know that uh, the first, I guess, run in I had with like diet like within my family was uh, i had a family member who was on like weight watchers and i was like i don't this doesn't make any sense to me like what do you like a food is a point like how do you just put like a point on food uh and then afterwards like uh i believe it was my aunt she lost something like 20 pounds which was great but then as soon as she was off of it she gained it back because it didn't teach her anything it was just like you get these points eat through these points and then you should be fine so um yeah, I agree that they're they're built to. I don't want to say they're built to make you fail, but they're they're built to make them money, right? So if it's like yeah. you can succeed as long as you keep paying for our stuff and using our systems, um, then then you can keep that weight off. But as soon as you let go, then it's like all hell breaks loose again. You didn't learn anything. You yeah, didn't there was no like behavior change attached yeah. to the f changes you were making with your food. It, yeah, there's a huge disconnect. Yeah, for sure. And so with the intuitive eating concept, they go over 10 different principles in the book. And, you know, we're just going to dive into like a few of like the bullet points and like what's really important about each principle. But like I said, like I would really encourage anyone who's interested in learning more to read the book. It's super knowledgeable. It's science-based. It's research-based. And it's written by two really knowledgeable dietitians. So the first principle is to reject the, the diet mentality. And I feel like this can be really scary, especially if you're a person who has been dieting for possibly decades. You know, this is just like your way of life at this point, And you've been doing it mm -hmm. so long, you, it's really scary to think about stepping away from it because um, I mean, for me personally, anytime that like I found myself wanting to go on a diet, it really seemed like everything else in my life just felt out of control. 
And with food, it's like the one thing that we can control. We can count the calories. We can count the macros. We can do this puzzle and we finally feel like we have a grasp on something in our lives. So we think that if we step away from that, then like all hell's going to break loose. We really don't have control over anything. And then, you know, normally all hell ends up breaking loose anyway. So back to square one. (laughs) And that's why, that's why therapy. Yes. uh, Oh my gosh. Everybody needs to go to therapy. Let's just all go to therapy together. But I think a few pointers when it comes to rejecting the diet mentality and like how scary this might be for a lot of us is really take the time to recognize the damage that diets have caused in your life. And, you know, how many diets have you been on? How many have failed? How many times did you end up actually gaining more weight and then your fear of food, like fear around food also increased your anxiety around food increased. Um, so recognizing Mm -hmm. that damage and really just like speaking into that or just like writing all of it out and like seeing how much it has like impacted your life in a negative way will really help you to realize like, okay, actually maybe it'll be a really good thing for me to step away from this. Um, I think too, and we talk about this a lot of your body doesn't know the difference if you're restricting calories on purpose, or if you're like stranded in the middle of nowhere and you actually are starving. So our bodies are still equipped to combat starvation at the cellular level. And as far as the body is concerned, dieting is a form of starvation, even though it may be voluntary. Um, and we also know that like chronic dieting, we ret- we tend to retain more fat when we start eating again. And this actually will like slow the rate of weight loss with each su- successive or yeah, successive attempt <laughs> at another diet. It's also going to decrease your metabolism and it will also increase possible binges and cravings when it comes to food. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, so I'm taking a like weight loss nutrition seminar class right now. And, and uh, everyone in the class is like on the same level, right? Like, yeah, we, this makes sense to us. Um, so it's really shocking that people like still don't know that. And, you know, we're like what 20 minutes in and there's so much more that we're talking about, but like even, even that small thing where it's like, Hey, your body doesn't know the difference. Like you need to, honor everything that's going on and like understand and they're just kind of like nah like that's not what i've been told uh is is definitely telling of the industry but also kind of speaks to what you said earlier about how if it's been so long um then it those are like really really difficult habits to break stuff and i find that sometimes when someone comes to me a client comes to me and they want to work on something sometimes the first thing that needs to be done is a reverse diet. It's like you've been mm-hmm. in this calorie deficit for so long that we need to give your body a break. You haven't earned the right to like even be in a calorie deficit. We need to like honor what your body needs, which is fuel right now and rest before you even really attempt to ha- do healthy weight loss or like weight maintenance goals. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And so once we're kind of able um, to step out of like, or the diet mentality of like, I just need to go on the next diet and that's going to fix X, Y, and Z in my life. Um, The next principle that they kind of go over is honoring your hunger, which 
it's really funny because I have always like growing up, I always read about like ways to stop your hunger, which is so strange to me. Like, why do we want to stop this <laughs> cue that keeps us alive and reminds us like, no matter how busy our day is like, Hey, Nicole, like it's been six hours. Maybe you should eat something and maybe you'll actually be able to focus and you won't be so irritable and you'll probably be more productive. <laughs> um, oh, and it's going to keep you alive. <laughs> but when it comes to like honoring yeah. our hunger, we specifically need to make sure that we're getting adequate calories and adequate carbohydrates, which um, little side note, the 1200 calorie diets are not enough for full blown grown humans. Yeah. They barely need a toddler's needs. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, in any respect, like it's not, it's not good. (laughs) If you are laying down literally all day, then maybe, but like you have a life, dude, you can't, you have to eat more. (laughs) I think it's interesting that you, you said that there are so many times where uh, you were trying to cut out the noise from the hunger cues right and being like no 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 like i'm not hungry right like that's that is objectively like really weird when you think about it because like it's your own body being like we need this mm-hmm. and you've been like no we don't you're like okay <laughs> i well I, th- I laugh because as an rd people <laughs> ask nicole and i this all the time is like what do i do when i'm hungry late at night and i'm like eat. you eat <laughs> like, you yeah. eat a balanced snack <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so specifically with carbohydrates, we know that like this is our main source of fuel. It's what keeps our brain going. It keeps our body going. It's involved in a lot of processes when it comes to our body and our health. Um, so I found this like really interesting in the book because, you know, nutrition nerds, um, there's actually a chemical produced by the brain called neuropeptide Y. And this will trigger our drive to eat carbohydrates. And when food is deprived or we're under eating, this drives neuropeptide Y into action, causing the body to seek more carbohydrates, whether that's at the next meal or whatever eating opportunity that comes next in your day. It's easy. It's easily to turn that into a high carbohydrate binge, not because of your lack of willpower, but because this is just normal biology. It's something that your brain is telling you like, Hey, we haven't had this and we really do need it. And so, and like, that's why when a lot of people, when they're just like, I'm so addicted to carbs, I just can't stop eating carbs. It's probably because you're not eating enough of them. And your brain is so hyper-focused on this macronutrient because it needs it so badly in order to continue to be at optimal health in your life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I think uh, another thing is like, like you said, uh, because your body doesn't know whether you're like dieting or if you may not eat again for like four or five days, then it's going to be like, this is your one time to eat we need to splurge because we have no idea when it's coming next. Um, So that's a huge thing. I think it's great that you called out that it's not like inherently your fault. It's just that you are trying to fight against something like a mechanism that is evolved over billions of years to keep you alive. (laughs) Good luck. Team carbs. Yeah. (laughs) Always. And I mean, our body 
it needs to know that like that food is consistently going to be there, that we're consistently going to be eating and that we're going to be okay, or it's going to go into overdrive and try to keep us alive, um, which isn't going to produce the results that your diet said were going to happen because your body, your body doesn't care about that diet and like whatever rules it's given you or however many pounds it's said you're going to lose. Um, so I think when like it comes to honoring your hunger, like we each just have to really figure out like what are our hunger cues? I think it's different for all of us. I mean, I personally get really hangry. I get really quiet and like just cannot even talk to anyone. I'm just like, no, just leave me alone because I am too hungry. <laughs> what are some of y'all's hunger cues? Yeah, mine's hangriness, like without a doubt. I, I just shut down. I get really irritable, which is like already terrible because I'm I'm already like on a short fuse most most of the day. <laughs> and so when I don't have food, I'm like, I'm gonna kill everybody that looks at me. Uh that and then I get headaches if I if I haven't eaten recently. Yeah, that was me. I was like, I get headaches and sometimes I'll just be like so in the zone working or doing something that the other stuff I won't it doesn't really affect me. Like my stomach's not telling me anything. All of a sudden I'm like, why do I have a headache and feel shaky? Like, oh, yeah, that's my cue. Yeah. And then um, the next principle I feel like is kind of one of the harder ones. Um, and that's making peace with food, which is basically the principle that says that you're allowed to give yourself that unconditional permission to eat. If you tell yourself that you can't or shouldn't have a particular food, it can lead to that intense feeling of depra deprivation and build into that uncontrollable craving. And often that results in binging. Is there like, do you guys ever remember a time in your life where you just like deemed something like a forbidden food and you just like couldn't stop thinking about it? Or have you ever like had that moment? I used to be like that with sweets and just you know, like, oh, I can't have these things. And so then if I would be out somewhere and it would be in front of me, it would just be like uncontrollable. It'd be like, yes, I need an entire plate full of brownies because I <laughs> have told myself that I couldn't have those things. I absolutely relate to this. It's a real thing. Yeah. Mine, uh, mine was tortillas because yes. uh, that, which, mm, you know, no, no comments, <laughs> but um, if, uh, you know, when, when I was trying to lose all the weight, I had put on um, after breaking my ankle, like that, I was like, well, I'll cut out bread because that's what I was always told. And the main source of bread was tortillas. And so you're right. Anytime I got like, they were put in front of me, I was like, I'm going to have six of these. Like They're <laughs> just too good. It's been too long. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely have done that before. Ro, when you knew that you were going to be cutting out bread or tortillas or whatever it was, did you like allow yourself that like last supper type meal, like the day before you knew you were going to be doing that? Uh, no, I think, I think it was just one thing that like just kind of happened one day. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't think I had like a, some, some sort of religious moment with it where I was like, Oh God, we need to sacrifice. <laughs> um, I think it just kind of, I was like, this is it. We're just doing this today. And then from there it kind of, you know, happened for a couple months or however long it was. See, I would totally do that, Nicole. Like before I would commit to starting a new diet, I would totally have this like 
last supper moment where it's like, I'm going to eat whatever I want and all this stuff and go crazy. And then even in some instances, it's almost like that whole cheat day mentality where it's like you've restricted so much calorie wise, Mm -hmm. food wise, and then you'd have this like binge day, which is so unhealthy in hindsight. If you feel like you have to have a cheat day, you're not on the right eating pattern path for you. For sure. Yeah. And that's, I I feel like a lot of women particularly probably relate to that concept, but um, Evelyn and Elise explain that last supper eating mentality, which basically says that if you know that something is going to be banned soon due due to the new diet you're going to be on, that this will create that sense of panic and send you on that eating rampage where you're just like, I have to have this. I'm never going to have it again. My body loves it, but we have to torture ourselves. (laughs) I think rampage is the right word too. Because you're just like, oh, I'm just gonna eat everything. <laughs> yes. So I think oh like God. when I That's started amazing. really diving into this principle for myself, mine was um, like baked goods from like a local bakery or coffee shop, and I remember just for like a couple months, like a couple times a week, I would just like walk to my local coffee shop, get a coffee, and get a pastry. Until that kind of like, like that need or want just died down. Um, so it's really scary, like giving yourself that unconditional permission to eat whatever it is that you've told yourself your whole life you can't eat. But it really is true that like the novelty of it will wear off. Like once you've really allowed yourself to enjoy it, to eat it, to taste it, and to just like go about your day and not think about it anymore. Eventually, you know, I stopped going to the coffee shop and getting the pastry and the coffee. And I'm just kind of like, if that craving or if that wanting comes up, I just know like, hey, I'm going to be able to have that. If that if that desire comes up again, like it's not going to be restricted from me. Yeah, I feel like cravings go through phases and it's normal. I truly feel like it's normal. Nicole, you probably have a better grasp on this than I do, but I think cravings are normal. And that if you're allowing yourself to have that craving and not tell yourself that it's bad in any way, there's nothing wrong with it. It's not immoral. It's just a craving and it's normal and it's going to come in a phase and you should allow yourself to have that food and be mindful when you're eating it and and try not like obviously be mindful, like you're saying, taste, enjoy, and not just like inhaling it then you absolutely have the power and you shouldn't fear a craving. Um, I think the next principle is one of my favorites because I think as dietitians, we see this a lot. Um, Just like when we're living like our day-to-day lives, not even really in our jobs. But the fourth principle is to challenge the food police, which we all know these people that like when you go to a party or you go to a dinner and they're just like oh, you're putting cheese on your tacos. Cheese is bad for you. And we're tying (laughs) all of these different like emotions, like guilt and shame when it comes to just like normal food preferences. And so I think like, I don't know what Brooke, like what's one of the ones that you've gotten when you've been out and about and someone has just like said, oh, X, Y, or Z has to be really bad for me. It's really bad for me, isn't it? Well, I feel like the worst is when people know you're a dietitian, right? Or they find out you're a dietitian and they're like, oh, I'm going to see what you're putting on your plate. 
And I'm like, what? I'm just putting on my plate what I think looks good right now. Okay. Like I'm not doing anything. Like I'm not, do not use me as a model for what works for you. So I think that like that to me is my, my pet peeve, I guess, is like when someone finds your dietitian, like, oh, wait, you eat that as a dietitian? <laughs> Yeah, like this six bowls of mac and cheese. <laughs> I earned this. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you we say. We actually passed our boards yeah. by only eating quinoa for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's how I that's how I got this degree, actually. <laughs> <laughs> one of, yeah, one of the prerequisites was but I think can you eat quinoa. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but when it comes to challenging the food place, yes, you like, especially when if you start into this journey of just like really figuring out what foods work best for you and what and what like eating habits work best for you, you're also gonna have to challenge your own inner food police because like I know for myself, like I definitely used like words like, oh, these foods are good, oh, these foods are bad. And then I also used words like Oh, I've been really good this week. I should reward myself with pizza with friends on Friday night. When really it should just have been like, I'm really excited to see my friends on or Friday. Like clean food. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, just like whatever negative thoughts that we've kind of like had in our head and that we've allowed to stay there, you really kind of got to sift through those and like see what it is that like is your food like your thought process around food and like how you can kind of like switch that up to be a more like positive and just like encouraging dialogue that you're having with yourself because then when like those other people pop up into your life and be like oh you're gonna get dessert like you're kind of just more able to like brush it off and be like yeah i'm gonna get dessert it looks really delicious yeah <laughs> yeah i agree with that and and i think that that you you shouldn't just be kind of focusing on um challenging your food police but also i'm not saying walk around and be like why do you think that uh <laughs> but if but if someone does say like oh it's interesting that you're eating you know red meat because it is going to make your heart explode and you're like oh that's not true why do you think that right and like a short little dialogue just to be like oh you know you can think what you want but you know i have this or whatever um at least starts to plant a seed in that person's mind to be like, maybe I've just been wrong or maybe it's not as bad or why am I thinking that way? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it helps everyone live a healthier life when you can at least say like, mm, I don't know, you should think about it maybe a little differently. And again, not like attacking them or being like, let's sit down mm -hmm. and think about the first time you had a diet. <laughs> um, <laughs> But also just being like, hey, maybe maybe think about it a little differently. And then like once you're kind of able to challenge that food, please challenge your own way of thinking when it comes to food. Um, the next principle, principle five, is to fill your fullness. And so this is where really listening to your body and when it's telling you that it's no longer hungry and observing the signs that show you that you're comfortably full so a good thing to do would be like to pause in the middle of eating and ask yourself, how is the food tasting? Am I still getting like that satisfaction or is it just starting to become like, mm, it's not really like, it's not as amazing as like the first few bites were or whatnot. 
and also just eating without distraction. So I know like I'm really bad about this sometimes of just like getting my dinner and going and sitting in front of the TV and watching some Netflix while also being on my phone. And then I look down and all the food's gone and I don't even remember like tasting it or like how it was, if I'm full, if I'm still hungry. And then like, you know, 20 minutes later, I'm like, holy shit, I'm stuffed. Yeah. I do this at my desk all the time. I'm so bad about this. My coworker, uh, Patty, would always get on to me. She'd be like, you need to stop working and step away from your desk and just eat. And I, and I would just be like, must keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the – of the ones we've talked so far and probably the rest of them that that's the hardest one for me is because, like, I, I don't I don't know. I, I When we were growing up, it was, you know, we ate as fast as we could – so that we could get back to playing. So we could get back mm. to doing whatever we we're doing. So my parents would always be like, slow down, enjoy your food, take a breath. And I'm like, <laughs> mm, I, I enjoy it. Uh, and and my thing was like, if I wasn't enjoying it, I wouldn't be eating it this fast. And they're like, yeah, shut the hell up. You know what I mean? Uh, but, you know, just being a smart ass. But even now there are times where I just like rip through food and I'm like, oh, like no one's even close to being done with their meals. Uh, let's try and hide this from everyone. Like, let's have a conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I also like, I do everything in my desk now since we're all like work from home. So I'm like, this is my lunch spot. This is my work spot. Um, and I don't ever really step away. But even when I do, I'm like, I wonder what's on YouTube. So it's like, I, I don't ever have like a moment of silence where I'm just like hearing... <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like that's a little weird for me uh this is that's, rose that's new youtube one. channel that's coming <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, geez. yeah and i think another thing about this um, within this principle like one of their tips is like defend like defending yourself from obligatory eating. So really learning how to say no, thank you. And growing up in the South, like this is so true because you just like, I remember being at like grandma's house or a friend's house or whoever it was like, you know, we have like 15 moms when you live in the South and every single time they're like, Oh, you want some more? Here's more. And just like dumping it on your plate. And then you're just like, Oh my gosh, like, I don't want to upset this person and then think that like their food's disgusting. So I really love that. Like they put this in here of like learning to just say, no, I'm good. I'm full. It's okay. I don't need a second helping because, um, that one was really hard for me growing up. Yeah, I can relate to that with my extended family because it's like they're – I swear it's a way mm -hmm. Southern women show love is to feed you. <laughs> so it's like I don't want to reject their love. And I, I totally, totally get that. But now I feel like um, when you do stand up for yourself and just kind of like know your boundaries in a polite way, people do respect that. And I think like now my my family totally respects that like – I'm saying no, thank you. Not a big deal. But I, I can relate to the Southern experiences, Nicole. For sure. And then having a, you know, Mexican grandparents, <laughs> yes, same thing. For like, sure. You hungry? You are now. Like, okay. <laughs> cool. Yep. Um, and then this next principle, the sixth principle is discovering the satisfaction factor. And I really loved learning, um, in the book, they kind of talk about different countries and like their 
perspective around food. And in this section, they brought up how the Japanese actually promote pleasure as one of their goals of healthy eating, which I thought was super interesting. And it says in like their kind of, what is our thing called? Like our goals, like our healthy health 2020 goals or something that the FDA. Healthy or, guidelines. Yeah, is the that guidelines. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of theirs was make all activities pertaining to food and eating pleasurable ones. Um, this is actually one of their dietary guidelines for health promotion. So I think just like in the diet culture world, like in our just like hopes and like desperation to be thin or like whatever our goal is when it comes to dieting, we often overlook one of like the most basic gifts of the eating experience. And that's like satisfaction. You know, when you go to eat something like you want to enjoy it, you don't want to be miserable and think that like, Oh, this is just like no flavor. This isn't satisfying me. Like, I mean, how depressing to like leave a meal and be like, that was no good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just wasted that time. Yeah. And yeah. So yeah, like, I think also like it's like it's like go going ahead. out to eat, right? And you're like, you go to a restaurant, you think it's hyped up, and then you're like, oh, this sucks. Right? You don't want to have that every meal. That would be horrible. Yeah. And I think like what we don't realize is like if we actually allow ourselves to really feel satisfied by the food that we're eating, we're not going to be as preoccupied with food throughout the rest of our day because we know that like we're satisfied. And then like the next time our body tells us that we're hungry, we're going to eat and we're going to be satisfied again. So really like taking out this satisfaction factor ultimately just keeps us more focused and obsessed with food and like how we're going to try to like stop this craving when like, if we would just kind of like allow ourselves to enjoy it, we would be able to walk away and not be so like hung up on like what's our next meal going to be or whatnot. Like we would just be living our lives more instead of thinking about food. Yeah. And I feel like in the past, like a good one is um, let's say my mom made brownies. She would always make these like Ghirardelli chocolate brownies. And I would tell myself I couldn't have one or I should eat something else. And I would go have something else that would be considered like health, a healthy food. Right. Or I morally was like, this is a good food. I would eat that and then I would just obsess over the brownie. And then instead of just having the one brownie, I would binge the brownies because I just created this like weird dichotomy where I like, and I gave it like the power and you're, you're really, it's strange that it's kind of like a mind game that we do to ourselves with diet culture. When in reality, if I just would have had the one brownie I really wanted, I wouldn't have played this weird game. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think like going off of that, mm -hmm. it's like, like you said, uh, if if you look objectively and you're like, do I want this fresh baked brownie or this apple we got at the store a week ago? I'm I would do have rice that cake. Brownie. That's the kind yeah. of BS I would do. I would eat a oh rice my cake. God, it's horrible. Styrofoam? Yeah. No. Yeah. And then and then the the funny thing is like Let's say you were like, well, I'm going to have another rice cake because I, that wasn't fulfilling. And then like, this sucks. I'm going to have another one. And then you're like, oh, I, I want that. I want that so bad. So you end up having <laughs> two brownies anyway. And it's like, well, if your main goal was to like lose weight and 
you just instead of having one brownie, you had two or three of them along with two or three rice cakes, along with whatever else you might have been grazing. So you're just like doing yourself a satisfaction disservice, but also like you're moving farther away from your goal of like trying to lose weight if that is your goal. Um, and I think when you frame it like that, people are like, oh, shit. <laughs> OK, maybe I can start to think about it a bit differently. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a great point, Brooke. Well, that's why it's like with intuitive eating, we say all you have permission to eat all food like that's really what it means. Like you have yeah. permission and there is a place in the diet for whatever it is that brings you that joy and that satisfaction. But it's, of course, still with balance and eating other foods that have like nutrient benefit, right? Yeah. That's really what it's about, I think. Yeah. And then this just leads us into the next principle, which is how we cope with our emotions using without using food. So the eating experience is a very emotional one. And I think we can all kind of remember a time and like many times throughout our lives, whether we were sad or whether it was a celebration and food was involved because of it. Um, it's just something that like really does bring us that, like, what's it called? Um, I can't think of this word. <laughs> it like brings us that peace. Like, I guess. Is it almost like nostalgia? <laughs> yeah. Like, it, just, like it comforts us. That's what I'm looking for. It really well, like does to me, I think us. it's like the nostalgia of like, oh, I did this awesome thing. So I'm going to reward myself with food because that's what I used to do. And so it like brings me joy because it's like this pattern that was created through childhood. So that's kind of like why I worded it that way. For sure. And each time like that significant life experience is celebrated with food, that emotional connection just deepens even further. So I think like for me, like being able to really like think about what emotion am I experiencing and what am I hoping is going to happen by like eating this food? For me, I really had to like figure out other ways of coping with my emotions, which is really hard because most of the time, if we are using food to cope with our emotions, it's really to not feel the emotion at all. Like we just want to kind of go numb and forget about it. And this yeah. is what's going to make this feel better. And then it ends up just like making us feel worse because if we are eating from an emotional place, we're oftentimes going to overeat, which is going to bring a whole nother set of emotions, whether that's guilt or shame, or just like that super uncomfortable feeling of like yeah. being really, really full. And it just like creates this really vicious cycle when it comes to like our feelings and how we're dealing with them. Nicole, I have a question for you. What are some like actionable mm -hmm, things forth. that you would recommend to do, or like, I guess, advice for someone who struggles with using food tied to emotion like if you like let's say you're super stressed this is probably everybody in 2020 <laughs> do you have like any suggestions for what would be something else you could do besides using food for coping i think the biggest um piece of advice is being able to like first and foremost just identify that emotion i think for a lot of us, we don't want to admit that we're lonely, that we're overwhelmed or we're sad or we're depressed, or we're really just freaking mad that like X, Y, or Z has happened in our lives or 
you know, a relationship has ended, like we don't want to face whatever it is. So I know it's not like the shiny, happy answer that everyone wants to hear, but really being able to name your emotion is like first and foremost, (laughs) the biggest piece of advice. Is just feel the hard stuff. Damn it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're going to have to deal with my demons. Absolutely not. (laughs) But also like, and two, like for me, gaining like that support system, like from friends or family or whoever it is, like, especially if you're going through really hard moments when it comes to like your body and your health. And like our culture has always told us that like thin is what is accepted. It's what is worthy. It's what is loved. So if you do diet, like if you do push back against that and your body starts to change and you do start to push back against diet culture and you really do start to like practice all of these principles, like you're going to need that support system. You're going to need that why why am i doing this and because it's going to get really hard like and i think that's like a huge thing with intuitive eating is that it doesn't like it isn't what all these other diets are promising all of these other diets are promising these quick fixes how it's just gonna like make your life so much freaking better than it was before and like ultimately like approaching nutrition from like this intuitive place is going to actually help you and make you feel your best but it's going to take a lot of shit in order to get there yeah and and i think also along with that is like you need the right people right because if you're if your mom has always been your support mm-hmm. system but she has also always been the one that's been like you're looking a little chunky we should go on let's go on this together let's go on a diet or whatever And you tell this person who for the past 20 plus years has been like, you look like shit, like, hey, I'm going to try and change the way I feel about food. They're going to be like, okay, that's wrong. Right. So like that, that's, that's another thing is like not only finding just a support system, but someone who maybe understands this a bit more, um, reaching out to, you know, the right dietitians or friends you might have that can understand that. Um, But that's a huge thing for sure. That's such a good point. And I think what's cool about this day and age, uh, a lot of the times social media has a negative, but I think this is a positive of social media and communities that are online and finding people that think the way you do, I think is, is really valuable to feel like you're surrounded by people who understand and support and are like on that same journey for sure. It's like flat earthers. Yeah, we should all be flat earthers. (laughs) Sure, just like that. We all think the same way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think one of like the biggest emotions that is associated with food that really honestly like just makes me really sad is that guilt is what we associate when we eat is we feel guilty that we ate whatever food it is. And it's just like, why do we feel that way? And I really like what um, the dietitian said in this book. And it was just like guilt may be an appropriate emotion when you have hurt another person or committed a crime, but guilt has no place in your eating world. And I would really love to just see (laughs) everyone just like step away from this like guilt and shame cycle when it comes to food. You deserve to be like your body deserves to be fed. Like you deserve to enjoy food. You de- and you deserve to like live your life and not have to like cancel, you know, plans or a trip or whatever because of 
whatever food is going to be around is outside of your diet or your eating patterns. Yeah, your your this is a hard lesson that for me to learn was my worth is not tied to the food I eat, how productive I am, how hard I train, my body weight. None of those things are tied to my worth as a human. We've all like everybody goes through different experiences throughout their lives that are really hard and difficult. And we as humans, like we're built to kind of survive (laughs) and we have to do like whatever it is that gets us through. And for a lot of people, food may have been the only thing that was there for them. And if that is anybody who's listening, like that's okay. And I know that like, that's really hard to like step away from that one thing that you felt like knew was always going to be there for you. But I think it's really important for us to continue to find other things that we know is going to be there for us and support us and get us to the next step and where we want to be in our lives. Yeah, a hundred percent. So with all of that, our next principle Principle number eight is respecting our body. And this just kind of ties into like accepting like your genetic blueprint. And I think this is getting a lot of hype right now, you know, with body positivity, um, all the things on like social media. But something that like I've seen quite often recently that I really liked is that if we all ate the exact same diet, did the exact same workouts, we would all still have different body shapes, weights, body composition, et cetera. Like body diversity is a real thing. And I think it's just something that we have to accept. Yeah. I think the world would be super boring if we all looked the same, believed the same thing, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think like for me, I think it's awesome to like see all different shapes and bodies like participating in different activities. Like I remember when I used to run um, half marathons and I would just see people of all ages, of all sizes participating. And I just always thought it was so awesome. I'm just like, this is so cool that like all of us are able to like get to the finish line, no matter like where we come from, what we look like. And you can look different and still engage in health and like still be healthy and find the health behaviors that like work best for you. And I really think like like, this is what that principle touches on. But I think one of the examples that they use that I really like too was um, like, think about your shoe size. And if you are, say you're a size nine, and you go into a shoe store and you like just are trying so hard to fit into the size six, it's like, of course you wouldn't think that you're going to fit into the size six because it's your foot and it's not changing. But for whatever reason, like we don't view our bodies the same way. We're just like, Oh, I'm a size 16. Like, but I really want to be a size eight. And it just may be like, maybe our bodies just aren't meant to be that size. And there's a read, like there's a reason that we're all different. We all look different and that's okay. I have a cousin who um, like randomly one day told me, he was like, Oh, I I never want to be any bigger or smaller than like a a medium t-shirt size. And I was like, uh, weird (laughs) because for me, like, you know, the, 
the promise of building mass to the point where I'm like an XXL, <laughs> you know, at like 6% body fat is like the goal, right? But it was so weird to, to hear someone who was so close to me and is like one of my best friends be like, yeah, I just don't ever want to be bigger than this arbitrary thing that we've like, like this size is just a medium. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay. But like, if you go to Japan, right, he's going to be a large or an XL because they're just like smaller people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go somewhere where there's like generally bigger people, he might be a small. Um, so it's really shocking, like to hear that. Uh, and, and I forgot what we were talking. Oh, yeah. Just like, you know, if you are a size six, why are you trying to be a, a nine or vice versa? Like if you are naturally something else, then like, why are you trying to limit your life so much so that you can be a medium t-shirt size? Like it doesn't make any sense to me, but I don't know. And I know we've talked about this a lot too, Brooke, and I think you recently just made a post about it of how you can love your body and still have body goals or want to make changes. And I think like the big difference here is loving your body. And most of our clients or people who come to us don't want to change their bodies because they love them. They want to change their bodies because they hate it. And so I think that you really have to kind of dive into like the fact and like the reason for why you're wanting to change. Like, is it because of all of like, the messaging that you've consumed from the media? Is it really because like you just want to be like healthy? And like, if it is that you want to be healthy, what are some other like health behaviors that you can engage in that really get you closer to that goal that have nothing to do with your size? So true. I can't, if I had a dollar for everyone that comes to me, it's like, I want to lose X amount of pounds. And then you start digging away at these layers deeper and deeper. And it's like, actually we're going to work on all kinds of things ranging ranging from like body confidence to it's like, why do you want to lose the weight? Like, let's actually get down to the why. And I guarantee you it's not about 10 pounds. And then there's a lot of things we can do health behavior wise that'll make you feel better that maybe you don't need to reach. I lost 20 pounds to feel better and have that benefit and be confident. So I, I think that's also a huge part of like working with a qualified health professional that has like a really good nutrition philosophy that's going to help you understand the why, get to the root issue and attack all these other things. Yeah. yeah. And then that also kind of leads me to a question for Row. And, you know, we always hear about individuals like wanting to come in and like spot reduce, like, oh, I just really want to u- lose my belly fat or, oh, I just really want to lose some fat on my thighs. And, you know, what we've kind of heard is that you can't, you know, focus on one area and expect to lose fat or whatever it is in that one place. So is it possible that individuals could build muscle underneath fat layers? Yeah. So I think uh, the first thing you have to understand is, is kind of what you said, Nicole, is that like everyone has their own genetic blueprint, right? We are very different. And for some reason, you know, uh, you may hold fat in your upper back more than someone else white. Um, you know, we know that males and females hold weight differently. It's generally in the hips and in the butt for women. And then it's generally in like the stomach area for men. And so when you have someone who's like, I've been dieting with my husband and they've just lost so much more weight, you can tell it's like, 
Well, yeah, because like they held all of it in their stomach. And so if they lose 10 pounds, it's like, it's huge because they have less of a stomach. But if you lose 10 pounds and you're holding weight in your thighs, your butt and your stomach, then like, all right, we can, we can, you know, theoretically say you lost three pounds, 3.33 in each spot. Like that's not a huge difference when you look at it, but it's a huge, it is a huge difference. Um, So that's like the first thing. But yeah, absolutely. Like the whole point of people who say they want to like tone, which I can get into way too much, but it's like those people, what they want is they want shape to their body. And so what they want to do is they want to build muscle. And so even if you never lost fat, but you were like, hey, I'm going to put on somehow magically 50 pounds of muscle, you would look much different. Like that fat would have less uh like you you would be considered less fat even though you have the same amount of fat just because you've put on more muscle size so you're talking about like body fat percentage ratios yeah yeah exactly like your mass is still there like the the mass could stay the same but like the fat to muscle ratio changes yeah uh, yeah and like let's say you have three pounds of fat on your on your upper arm right so we're like focusing strictly on the biceps uh and you have one pound of muscle which is the actual bicep arbitrary units and you decide to lift weights you're just (laughs) curling every day Um, (laughs) now you might still have that three pounds of fat but let's say now you have six pounds of bicep muscle right that the fat itself didn't change you still have that but there's more shape and you look stronger and you look leaner because you have more muscle. Um, so you're right. You can't just be like, I'm going to work out my, I'm going to do crunches until I throw up and I'm going to do overhead presses until my shoulders are like, they have less fat, but you can add shape by adding in muscle mass, but there's like a very distinct difference there. And if you have 20 pounds of stomach fat, then even if you put on five pounds of solid muscle, like it's very difficult to see because you do have kind of that, that layer of fat that is there. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are different things and you can't spot reduce. Like I think that most people are finally starting to get around to understanding that. Um, Not the but, people on Pinterest row. You need to get on there and start schooling people. Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll be like a, a Pinterest influencer. <laughs> if there's a, a influencer. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that you cannot spot reduce. You can, you can put on muscle there, but the the fat is, is still there. And that's just, that's natural to, to whoever it is, uh, based on, on their genetic makeup. Exactly. You don't get to decide where it it melts away first. Your genetic code does. So like Godspeed with altering that. Let me know when you figure it out. Maybe like Elon Musk (laughs) is almost there. I don't know. Somehow. Absolutely. (laughs) We're going to Mars and it's all people with no tricep fat. It's going to be sweet. (laughs) Yeah. So I think the biggest tip when it comes to this principle, I think that it's really hard for clients or individuals to accept this because I think when they're like, oh, if I just like accept my body or appreciate my body, then I'm just going to become complacent and I'm just going to like let myself go. And that's a really like scary thought. But I think what we really have to just kind of counter that thought with is the fact that like, what has hating your body gotten you? What has 
you know, diet after diet, like where has it gotten you? And just reminding yourself that like hating your body doesn't get you any closer to your goals. In most situations, it's going to get you even further from your goals. And when we can really step into this action of respecting our bodies, that's actually going to lead us and motivate us to partake in those health engaging behaviors. And that's going to keep you motivated long term. It's not just going to be three months until you go to the beach with your family. And then after you go to the beach with your family and wear that bathing suit, you're done. You know, this is really going to be something that allows you to continue to engage in these health behaviors for the rest of your life. And if you're wanting to learn more about this principle specifically, um, there's a really great book um, called Body Respect. And it's by Linda Linda Bacon and Lucy Aframore. Um, I really, really enjoyed that book. And it just kind of like goes into the concept of like why body respect is actually going to produce better results than dieting ever would. Do you, do you I have a question? For you, that, do you think that, uh, do you think that, uh, Linda Bacon changed her last name, uh, to fit the body respect book? Or do you think that was her <laughs> actual last name? Because, because great move. Yes. No, I definitely thought about that. Who knows? Maybe she did. We can reach out. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh my God. Um, but the next principle row you'll yeah. probably love, um, principle nine is about exercise. And this is really shifting your focus to how it feels to move your body rather than how many calories you burn during your last workout. Um, losing weight cannot be your primary or only motivating factor. This just isn't enough. So I guess Ro, like when you, um, are working with a client and, they're just like really unmotivated, like to do their workout or they just hate their workout. Like what are some ways that like you approach that situation or like what have you seen can really shift someone's focus to actually enjoying whatever movement they're partaking in? Yeah. So that's a really great question. <laughs> um, I think it starts with uh, the goal setting in the beginning, right? Cause you're like, you know, what is it you want to do? And they say, I want to lose weight always. Um, and you're like, okay, well, this is our main focus, blah, blah, blah. Um, if your sole focus is like, I just want to lose weight and we've talked about it, we've had conversations and they're at a healthy place. Um, they're strong enough and everything. Then it's like, okay, that's our goal. Then at that point, it's just like, let's do things that you enjoy, right? Let's make sure that we have movement patterns in there that are um, going to keep you healthy, right? So if you are sitting for 12 hours a day, like really want to hit that posterior chain, a lot of glute work, a lot of core work. Um, but the rest of it is just going to be like, hey, you want to just do sprints? And that's what you like? Let's do two sprints. Uh, sometimes I, I do kind of uh, give my clients like uh, burnout sets for like biceps at the end because it's just what they want. Uh, it doesn't like really do anything i think long term it's just kind of like added volume and it's a junk volume it's just fun it's kind of like, fun yeah absolutely yeah, like, like, <laughs> i don't want to feel my arms <laughs> I'm like, like all right a, if that's i don't know want, i'm sure. one of those clients <laughs> yeah. where i'm like yes all the bodies yeah, yeah. curls for the girls <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like walking around like t-rex arms <laughs> like oh sorry i just <laughs> i had a good workout um so that that's like the first thing is like it, it's you know it, there's so much play around uh with like a trainer and their coach or a trainer and their client because you you want them to keep exercising like that's the main thing and if they hate it 
but I have all of the scientific reasons down to the molecular pathways where like, oh, this is going to increase your AMPK and it's going to be better for blah, blah, blah. And they're like, I fucking hate this. Then then you have to stop doing it. Like they're they're paying you to to be like the to figure out the puzzle pieces. And if I'm like, this is your puzzle. Oh, well, you have to do it. Then they, they're just going to go somewhere else. One. And then two, it doesn't teach them that like, you know, there's a lot of give and take. Like some days you just can't squat because for the whole week you've been sitting. Um, I think I, I mentioned a book earlier that like my, my week this past week was just like terrible. And I spent way too much time in a chair and like my back hurts. And so like today, first of all, I definitely should not have squatted, but I squatted anyway. Um, but I squatted much less than I like was planning to. Um, and, and that's, that's it really. Like if you, if you are like, what's your main goal? Um, if it's just to do A, B, and C, then we can just keep the things we need to keep. But then the rest of it's fun. Like you want to make sandbags so that we can throw them around. It costs 30 bucks for sure. Go get yourself some sand. Go get some bags off of Amazon. Um, I'm not going to say no because like, oh, you know, you're this 45-year-old office worker who like needs this state-of-the-art program. Like unless you're an elite athlete who we have decided we need to work on power production, then it, it doesn't really matter. Um, and that's like the, that's it. Like if they are happy doing it, if they feel good doing it, if they are seeing their results, then like you don't have to switch it. But if they're like, I hate this, or I hate this one specific movement, take it out. Like there, there's, there's no, there's no gospel in, in any of this. And I don't plant yeah. my flag in anything. So if it's your that's, profession, that's like, I feel like you highlighted it's yeah. like, if it's your profession, it's a different story. Like your body's sure. your moneymaker. You have to perform for a sport. It's a little different. But for yeah. the most part, we all should just be moving because it's something we enjoy. It makes us happy, like de-stress. Like we want to feel stronger and better. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we can all obviously agree that physical activity is absolutely associated with long-term health. It plays a role in our metabolism, our mood, our lasting lean muscle mass, um, and many other things. But if we can agree that exercise is a vital component to a healthy and happy life, why would we only do it for weight loss? So like, say I'm moving my body in a way that feels yeah. good to me and it's making me feel happy and strong. And I'm doing this for 30 minutes to an hour, like four to five times a week. If I don't lose any weight, should I just stop exercising? Yeah. No. Well, right. it's hard for me to wrap my head around that a lot of people are like that yeah. because for me, it's such a huge part of my life that I love being active. And I'll sure I'll try different things and like routines and it looks different throughout my life. But being active is such a huge part of my life. And I feel like that ultimately should be the goal yeah. is like finding out what works for you. And activity is always a part of your life. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. definitely do not like, do not be afraid to try new things. Do not be afraid to ask questions. And um, if you are working with a trainer, like just really like letting them know like what makes you feel not your best and like, hey, that kind of like makes me feel like a little in pain or like a little uncomfortable. Like, can we try something else? And that person's going to work with you and you're really going to start to enjoy that movement more and be motivated to continue. Yeah. Ro can tell yeah. you, I blow up his comments with <laughs> everything I have to say about all the things I'm doing for my training sessions. 
She's like, I did this wrong. Is it okay? I'm like, yeah, whatever. As long as you're moving. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that uh, you brought up a really good point, Nicole. Um, you should you should be telling your your trainer, your coach, whatever you want to call them, um, how you're feeling. But you should also be asking questions. Like I get I get tons of questions because I always say like, hey, let me know what your thoughts are. And even if it's like, why are we doing three by ten as opposed to five by fives? Um, you know, those are basic questions any trainer worth their salt should be able to answer um but those are also questions that you deserve answers to so it's like you know someone should be able to lay out well you're a firefighter oh i need you to be able to do this you also enjoy this and your groin hurts um that's all we have this instead of i don't know i read it in a book and if we strain you further from that then things might go bad um so you know i think that that plays into it as, as well but good point and finally, on our last principle, we have made it. <laughs> um, so the last principle is <laughs> honoring your health with gentle nutrition. So I think the media does a really great job at putting messaging out there that um, about food, like using words like clean or non-toxic or superfood. And in reality, like Super nothing, food. this has nothing, uh, nothing of this has anything to do with your health. And if you're constantly worried about what's in your food, how can you actually enjoy it? And I really loved one of the stories that they told in the book regarding this principle. And it's actually a study done by food psychologist, Paul Rosen. And this study was conducted using four countries and found that the French are the most food pleasure oriented and the least health oriented. And in contrast, Americans had the worst of both. So we have the greatest worry over our health and eating and have the greater, the greatest dissatisfaction for what we eat. And what he concluded was that the negative impact of worry and stress over healthy eating may have a more profound effect on health than the actual food that is consumed. And from our good old health pro promotion days at Mississippi State, we know that stress triggers a biological chemical assault in our bodies and that long-term stress can be one of the most detrimental things to our health. So when I found out how bad like stress was for our body and our long-term health, like I was terrified because I've been a pretty stressed out person for a really long time. Nicole and I would look at each other and be like, I think grad school has taken years off of our lives. Like we're sitting here uh, learning about how horrible <laughs> this is. Like you can eat healthy and you can exercise right. And you're still going to die a heart of a heart attack. If you put your body in it, we're like, Oh shit. You're like, oh, I'm dying okay. of a heart attack tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, I already have so many more gray hairs than I did when I began. So it's it's really good. It's good. I know every time I look in the mirror, I'm like, oh, man, you're just getting uglier every day and older. Um, but like going back to the inflammatory processes, like we we know that like, you know, exercise is like a good inflammatory that like sometimes food is a good inflammatory. It kind of depends on the the levels and whether it's uh, acute or um over a long period of time but yeah if if it's going to hurt you more to going back to brooke like not having that brownie just have the fucking brownie like it, it seems counterintuitive to be like yeah you know we're just gonna slowly kill ourselves because of all this added stress because i can't have that piece of chocolate like life, what a yeah, life is too short experience. 
Life is too yes. short. Eat the damn brownie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying like you know I have ninety brownies a day, right? There's obviously limits, but yeah, I mean you have to enjoy yourself. You have to be able to respect your body, honor your health, all the stuff that we've talked about. Um, so that that's that's a huge one. That's really great. And I think one of the biggest arguments when it comes to intuitive eating is that we have to track in order to manage our consumption. And they brought up the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act, which was introduced in 1990. Um, and this is when like they started giving all the information in regards to like how many calories, how many carbs, sugars, fat, et cetera, were like in our foods. And so for 30 years, we've had access to the breakdown of how much X, Y, and Z is in our food. And this information has just increased over the years with internet access and tracking apps and all that different things. But what's interesting is that the incidence of obesity and eating disorders in the United States has steadily increased ever since the idea was said of like, we need to know all the numbers when it comes to nutrition. So really how much is all the tracking and counting and dieting helping? And I think that research shows that it's not. Yeah, I would say that's true. It's it's created um what is it called, Nicole? There's actually a diagnosable eating disorder when you are obsessed orthorexia? with yes, orthorexia. Exactly. Yeah. That escaped me. I think that that's probably because we have this culture where it's this over access and obsession with tracking. I, I would say that I mean that emerged and just became a diagnosis within that last thirty years, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's like one of the newer disordered eating uh, names, but I mean, when it really comes down to it, obviously this is a lot to unpack. These ten principles, you know, they take time. <laughs> There's a lot of like grace that has to be given in this process, but I think like the biggest thing is is that this is not a disregard to your health and well-being. It really is more so like a fight to really see and engage in what is going to make you the healthiest and the happiest and the least stress. Because if your health habits are creating that chronic stress in your life, then they're probably not the best health habits for you and your lifestyle. And so I think really here, we just want to advocate for people to be able to play around with what works for them and realize that this is not a one size fits all. And you yeah. don't have to compare yourself to the person next to you or the person next to them. And you definitely shouldn't judge yourself based on what they're doing or like the results that they're seeing. And really just continue to ask questions. Whoever you do trust, like come along you and your health journey, continue to ask those questions, continue to advocate for yourself and realize that like, there are so many different ways to approach healthy living and you deserve to be able to engage in all of those. So really when it comes down to intuitive eating, we have to be able to find that balance between healthy eating while also having that healthy relationship with food. And they really do go together. If you can't view food in a healthy way, then you're really not going to be able to engage in the eating habits that are going to produce long-term health for you in the long run. 
But that is about all I have on intuitive eating, which is kind of a lot. I love intuitive eating. I appreciate you going through it. it, Like it definitely is so much there. You could honestly dissect every little principle into its own podcast. But I love the whole overall concept of learning to trust yourself again and your body and like getting back in touch with the basics. I just feel like it's so powerful. Talking about intuitive eating makes me feel really happy. Yeah. Uh, I do have a question, Nicole. So as, as someone who, you know, is is studying this like currently and, and I'm not into like obesity and diabetes, like that's not my kind of niche. Um, but as someone who who is aware of like the cardiovascular risk disease that that is inherent to people that like are obese or unhealthy or something, um, like what what do you say to to people who are like um, you know, yeah, maybe you're very healthy, like your blood work is good, like everything looks good on paper, but you are 40 pounds overweight, right? So I, let's say I'm the one that's like, that person's unhealthy. Like, look at the way they they look or whatever. Like, how how would you go about answering that or like dealing with that situation? Yeah, so I really love this question because I've gotten it multiple times. And <laughs> My biggest answer is say someone that on the outside you associate with health probably means that they're thinner. Say they come to you and have X, Y, and Z going on in their life that they want to work on to get healthier, whatever it is. Obviously, like you're not going to really promote weight loss for them because you already see them as this thin person weight loss really isn't the answer. Let's focus on other health behaviors that might really positively affect whatever it is their, like their goal is. But then you have another person who comes with the exact same health goals with the exact same issues. And when you look at that person and say they're 40 pounds heavier, they're they're a hundred pounds heavier. Um, and you associate that with unhealthy living or whatever it may be, why is your, um, I guess like your treatment of care different? Like if these two, two people are coming to you with the exact same questions and concerns in regards to their health, why is this one person only being prescribed weight loss while this person is being taught actual other like health behaviors? And that's where we really have to like address our own bias when it comes to what we perceive health to be. And a lot of the times we perceive health to be just a thin person, regardless of what behaviors they're partaking in. What a great answer. Like I I was listening to that and I was like, yes. Light bulb moment. Yeah. I I mean, because like, first of all, like one of the things like you said is, um, if someone comes to you with goals, like your, your job is to focus on those goals. You shouldn't be like, Hey, how about also let's lose weight. Um, so be, be better if you're a, a practitioner. Um, but I think that that's so, so great because like I have learned more about health bias and I have, um, started to like question a lot of the things that, you know, I, I, I put in on myself and then also being like an exercise scientist, like, Oh, well, how can you be an RD if you're not, you know, skinny or if you're not healthy? And I know that like 
everyone, I don't say everyone, a majority of people have those thoughts. Um, so it is like really great to, to hear that, like, well, why would you change your entire plan of action if just because this person is like a little heavier and you're like, oh, yeah, OK, you're right. I have to check myself there. Um, that was a great answer. I mean, um, we've all like and, and we've all been there. And like even me, like I was not a dietitian that was on board with intuitive eating and like I definitely focused on weight loss the majority of my life in regards to my own health and thought that that's just like what we were supposed to do. But I just think like the more you dive into the research and the more you push back in a healthy and respectful way, that's where you really start to learn and be like, wait a second, <laughs> everybody should be approached in the same in the same regard when it comes to their health. And it shouldn't just be labeled, well, you're fat, you just need to lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do have another another question. Um, and I think it's it's a bit of a false dichotomy that maybe I've created or like people have created. Um, so let's say someone who is like morbidly obese obese, right? And they have to lose weight because, you know, um it's gonna help every facet of their life. Um so they come to you and they say like, hey, like my doctor has prescribed exercise nutrition. I want to work with you, blah, blah, blah. Like, is there a point where, and, and I, when I say scale, I don't mean it as like a pun, but you know, like where, where's, is the scale on, we have to trust your hunger hormones and, and how you are. And for the sake of your health, we have to try and restrict stuff because as someone who, you know, um, or not as someone who I've never been 400 pounds, but someone who maybe is or has been, like we know that they're not as in tune with their hunger signals, that their hormones are out of whack, and that like obesity has this huge cascade of things that it can affect. At what point is it like, hey, eventually we'll get to intuitive eating, but right now we have to focus on, you know, whatever, 1,500 calories or whatever extreme shit that you're going to put them on like what 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 does that look like well the biggest thing is like you definitely don't want to start with anything extreme and that's something that like brooke and i have kind of learned too is you know even if you just start with like a 200 calorie deficit like you know those small actions are still going to produce change and like yes every person is going to be different and there's going to be different goals and way that we approach them and the way that we, you know, carry those actions out. But the primary focus still cannot just be weight loss. Like we still need to find out what that person is going to enjoy when it comes to like their eating habits or their movement habits, what their stress like, what their past is like. And it really is going to take like a multi dimensional team. Um, based on like who's coming through your door and like what they need. So it's continuing to like cl collaborate with other health professionals as well. And um, still not making weight loss the primary goal because a lot of, I mean, and this is, yeah. I don't know if I, I don't have like all the facts on this, but people who are considered overweight or obese can still, um, like they still can have eating disorders and they can still be in like a starvation mode and you just don't know it because like they do appear to be larger and well-fed. That's absolutely true. And I was going to say kind of to Rose question, 
even though like I, I certainly approach what I do in a mindful way. I don't practice necessarily like the intuitive eating to it, you know, in the same way that Nicole does, but when someone has like a big outcome goal that is necessary for their health and something that this client wants to do for the right reasons, I like to work backwards and break it down into behavior and habit-based goals because we can't control the outcome. We can control your behaviors and your habits. So if we're breaking this down in these little steps, someone who has had, you know, really unhealthy eating patterns that might be um, like you describe as like morbidly obese, Something like as as simple as scaling back the soda can mean they're reducing 500 calories a day. And so instead you're like focused on these little behavior changes that you can build and kind of like skill stack when someone becomes confident and then like move on to the next thing can make a huge difference. So that's kind of how like Mm -hmm. I would say would be like a way to mesh that like we recognize that there's a health reason for the weight loss, but we still want to do it in a mindful way. That's like kind of how I mesh the two worlds. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Yeah. Cause those are things that I've heard so much um, from, from myself, from my program, from people who are like exercise scientists and generally fit people, right? Like, of course, when you are, you know, not an elite athlete, but you're someone who's pretty fit. You're like, oh, how could you not be fit? Um, and then not understand that there's like a whole bunch of reasons. And also like, what is fitness to to you and then to someone else? Um, but I think that, Nicole, your answer was awesome. And then like, Brooke, you being like, yeah, this is what we do anyway. It's just that we don't call it like intuitive eating. It's just like a process where we're looking at, you know, why you act the way you do and why things, um, you know, maybe affect you in a certain way. Um, but those are, yeah, thank you so much. Those are really great answers. So problem. This has been fun, y'all. Thank you guys for listening. I know. Yeah. I guess it's time, time to sign us off. And um, we need to shout out the podcast Instagram. Yes. And get that we going. We got, um, so if you have questions for us and you want to find us, the easiest way to do it would be to go at health unfiltered podcast on Instagram and it'll link to all of our individual profiles and like, and what we do. So then you can find us if you have specific questions. Um, but please reach out, let us know your thoughts, like what you thought about things, comments, questions. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Yeah. And then uh, like how we started with the question of the week, we're going to try and do that every week. So um, if you have like a really great question or if we have like a, a multitude of questions that we think we can um, kind of make just like a Q&A type of uh, podcast, that would be that would be great. So uh, we really want to use this as a resource for the listeners um, and not just, you know, a chance for us to catch up and hear our own voices and drink. So <laughs> that <would laughs> That's be, always be fun, great. too. But <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Cool, well, cool. until next time. See you later. (laughs) Peace out.